0: In this glorious Lord's Worship Day. If you'll turn in the Bible with me to First Peter chapter five. First Peter chapter five, we have just to set some expectations, an anticipated three Sundays left in First Peter. That will put us almost at a year, going from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, to the end of the letter. And then we will turn to the Old Testament, where we will begin a study of what was originally one book, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. So we'll be looking at those two together. You can start reading over those now in anticipation of what the Lord will show us in our weeks studying those texts. But this morning we are again in 1 Peter chapter 5 and I will read from verse 1 to verse 7. We'll be looking principally at verses 5 through 7 this morning. Remember that these are the words of the Lord. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ... you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, or in similar manner, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. This is the reading of God's Word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come before You again this morning with glad hearts because of Your work this week, but also with heavy hearts because of the sin that still remains in our flesh that you are purifying us from. Please turn our eyes this morning towards Jesus so that we might see how effectual His sacrifice truly was for us and that we might be humbled as you're calling us to be here in the text this morning. It is in Jesus' name we ask these things. And amen. Well, brothers and sisters, I am still blown away. At the kindness of God over this last week, the discussion that, or the, excuse me, the decision that was handed down by the Supreme Court on Friday to overturn the American atrocity of Roe v. Wade was without question a mercy from God that we will be celebrating for years to come. And as is often the case in the providence of God, we were going over the providence of God in the Catechism this morning. I'd like to read Question Eleven to you. God's works of providence, what are they? They are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. And certainly this was the case on Friday with the decision that was handing down. God is such a good storyteller too. You may have made note of the fact that Uh, This month is Pride Month, and now Christians have something to be proud of in the month of June. In addition to that, um, this decision was handed down just four days after Juneteenth, which is the celebrating of the beginning of the end of slavery in America, and certainly the beginning of the end of the slavery that goes on in the Holocaust of abortion is beginning... This month, It goes without saying that the lost will dig their heels in in moments like these. They are, because of their lostness in sin, incapable of resisting sinful pride. I'm sure that you've heard some of the reactions to the decision. Rioting, looting, death threats to the Supreme Court. More damages done to pregnancy resource centers etc. etc. Several of the men were posting in Slack how the Planned Parenthoods all seemed to close the day after the decision came down. Uh, You may have heard that this was a strategic move on their part. They're trying to make it acutely aware to all of us that women are now incapable of getting the services that they need. And there were camera crews at these resource clinics, these murder mills where women would go to have abortions, and it's all to make a PR stunt and show how wicked and horrible the decision was. That was their effort. This is the sad but expected high-handed, I will not bow the knee to your God answer from those who have yet to see the great light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter's already told us that we should not be surprised. On the other hand, the church of Christ should and will respond with joy, celebration, fervency to prayer, and as was mentioned in the prayer this morning, a continuing of the work of ministering to men, women, and children in this dark land in which we live. We are not ashamed of this day, nor will we back down from the fight for the absolute reign of Christ in every area of creation. We should prepare for increasing persecutions in the days ahead. What guiding principle is going to be invaluable to Christ the King in the coming months? What's our one across the board in-house rule In the days ahead, what is the answer to the question, how now shall we live? Peter tells us all. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. Well, you know he's in a continuing discussion of Christian conduct, having spoken to many groups throughout this letter. He's most recently given some conduct commands to the elders of the church of Jesus Christ. And now he turns briefly to speak to those who are younger or young men. The ESV chooses a more all-inclusive term, you who are younger, seeing there being a contrast between the elders and those who are not elders in the church, that being the rest of the church. I prefer the Legacy Standard Bible's reading You younger men is how the LSB renders it. I prefer this for three reasons. Number one, the Greek word here is masculine as opposed to a neuter. Peter also speaks to the entire church in the next phrase. He goes on to say, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. But most importantly, I think that he's addressing here a sin that would be common to young men in the church of Jesus Christ. Who is the most likely candidates to challenge the elders' authority? It's important to realize that God speaks to the sins of His people by addressing what is most probable, not all that is possible. He speaks to what is most probable, not to all that is possible. For example, the Bible never specifically mentions that men are prohibited from gossiping. This is not because men are incapable of blabbering to one another, which would still be sinful. But men's created nature does not tend them towards this vice. It is more common among women. Peter also does not here tell young women to be submissive to their elders. Yes, they could be rebellious, but they were not the most likely candidates. Think for just a minute with me about the intensity of the struggle that the early church currently finds itself in. We've mentioned sufferings, persecutions, robbery, poverty, molestation and abuse, injustice, torture, and martyrdom. Whose temper is most likely to get the best of them? The young men. When the elders are setting the example, as Peter has just exhorted them to, of bearing up under the heavy load of Emperor Nero and his shenanigans when they, the elders, won't turn back a fist in retaliation but instead encourage the church to meet for singing of the Psalms when they teach the congregation week in and week out that the suffering for Christ they're experiencing is a normal part of the Christian life and that there's no more time for the wild, wicked behavior of the past. Who is most likely going to get impatient, lose their cool, go ape or wall? It's the young men. In the last 10 years, we've had a whole group of young men like this emerge in the church of Jesus Christ. That's right, the YRR crowd, the young reformed. And restless, These are insecure, effeminate boys who got frustrated at the fact that their pastor didn't let them into the Calvinist club of the neighboring church and reacted by throwing a sola-ticked-off tantrum and leaving to attend the local Jesus-is-my-homeboy chapter. The result was a culture of misapplied strength, misapplied masculine strength. Strength. It's like trying to clean your toenails with a toothpick and a swift kick to the wall. Several months ago, Doug Wilson did a YouTube video where he encouraged Christians not to take the bait. The liberals are playing the long game, and with their long march through the institutions, have eroded most of the greatness of the Western Christian tradition. The frustration level of conservative Christians in America is getting higher by the minute and there is a genuine concern that from some wild and woolly, independent, fundamental, temperamental, likely young man that he might lash out in the name of Jesus against the powers that be and that's when the hunt for Christians will truly begin. Peter's counsel to young men is to and he uses a word we're very familiar with, hupotasso. Be submissive to their elders. Not to their youth pastors, mind you. But to their elders, the pastors of the church. Notice the word likewise. The elders have to submit to. They've had to submit to the exhortation of their fellow elder, Peter. And so Peter extends that exhortation to the young men of the church. He says, don't cause trouble, don't raise unnecessary Roman attention, don't stir the Nero hot pot, but instead be in subjection. Presbyterian pastor J. Adams said, the hot blood of youth may run so strongly that young men in the congregation find it hard to move as slowly and deliberately as their elders. They want changes now, but though it is possible for the elders to become too conservative in their thinking and acting and decision making, and yes, this is the case, these younger members may fail to recognize that careful, cautious judgment is required of an elder. That is why Pastor Adams says they must submit. Young brothers, you must submit to the authority of the elders. Submission does not mean silence. You are allowed to speak up if you sense danger in the congregation. Young Elihu did this after waiting patiently while Job's three friends tried to help him out. But remember, as a man and a young man among men, Words are like currency. You only have so many. And the more you spend, the less value you keep with yourself. If you want weightiness, that gravitas, that true masculinity brings, know your place in age and life and use your words and your younger years well. Calvin said that young men are inconsistent and need a bridle. Young men, resignation to the fact that this is the case and willing submission to it is the fastest way to maturity. You will want to be heard, noticed, and loved. Repent of all of these desires. Pursue Christ and faithfulness to Him. When your elders ask you to give something up or do something hard, Do it. It may put you at the back of the social line in the church or in the community. If people don't talk openly of you and don't seem to notice you, but you're being faithful to King Jesus, authority and leadership and gravitas will flow to you. Christ will see of that. Being a good man young men, is too shallow of a goal. Your elders desire you to be good at being men. We want men who can walk into a room and know that they have something to contribute to the team. We want men that have confidence to understand and read and lead women. We want men who have enough wisdom to know the difference between boldness and brashness. St. Paul would tell you that kicking at the goads won't get you anywhere. Young men, as a point of application, would you consider spending some fellowship time with the even younger men in this church? I saw an example of this after prayer on Wednesday night this week. It means the world to the little guys when they have one of the big guys playing with them. It also calls the younger boys up to maturity faster. Consider using, young men, your young years well. Well, we go on to the main topic of the day now. Peter's encouragement to the entire church. He says, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. The elders have been called to submit to show their own humility. Now the young men have been called to submit to the elders, to show that humility. And now he brings everybody in and says a compound of two Greek words. He says, which means in your abdomen, get low to the ground. It's a little strange. In your abdomen or the core of your being, get low to the ground. This is an inner acknowledgement and a glad acceptance of the place that God has ordained for each person in the body of Jesus Christ. Peter's churches were in a real off-road environment. They were blazing a trail, having to work harder on the rocky terrain. They had to avoid pits and traps. And they were taking some hits in order to make some real forward, lasting progress. For the church engine to function properly in those conditions, it's going to need some good oil. And Peter says that oil is the holy anointing oil of Christian humility. You have to remember, there are slaves and slave owners in the same church. There are people from high social standing and low There are Jews and there are Gentiles. Let me ask you a question. How does a Gentile at the Cappadocian church who's under intense pressure from his family to cave to the Roman emperor cult handle sitting next to that Jewish family that used to pass him in the street and cross to the other side just in order to stay clean? What about the Bithynian slave master who finishes his fellowship meal each week and is asked by his elders to do dish duty alongside his converted house slave? What if you had to listen to a Roman soldier sing the praises of King Jesus right next to you each week, having just the week prior looked on as a family from your church had been run through with spears when they wouldn't offer the pinch of ceremonial incense and say, Kaiser Curios," which means Caesar is Lord. Peter says, Pontes, everyone, everybody, must be clothed with humility. This is the only time that the word clothed, the Greek word For clothed here is used in the New Testament. It is used in Greek literature to refer to the apron that a house slave would tie around their waist to identify them as a slave and to prepare them for work. Can you think of where Peter got an idea of someone tying a garment around their waist to serve? That's right. He watched. He was eyewitness as the maker of the entire universe laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. John 13. Jesus said later on in that chapter, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Today, more than ever, we need an army of men who understand and follow Jesus' example of Christian humility. If we are to do this rightly, I must make a significant qualification. We speak often here at Christ the King of gender, nature, and roles. And this is because our culture is so profoundly confused on this issue. In the spirit of full equality, the Western church has largely conflated the virtue of humility with the sin of effeminacy. I didn't say femininity. Effeminacy. This is to say that in order to be humble like Jesus, a man must act like a man. He must not be soft. He must not be tender, delicate, weak, unmanly, and none of those are wrong for a godly Christian woman. Jesus did not act this way. He did not stop being God when He served His disciples. He said, I am your Lord. He didn't abdicate His divine kingship. He also didn't stop being fully man, as though emasculation were required for godly submission. We all know that humility is not thinking too highly of yourself. David says in the Psalms, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. David thought not too highly of himself; He got to the ground right where he needed to be. But humility is also not thinking too low of oneself. The Greek does suggest getting low to the ground. So then you might think, if I'm this low, can I go lower in order to get higher, which is foolishness. This is false humility and it is just pride in the opposite direction. If Peter were to pastor churches in America today, I think his command for humility would look vastly different. He would, like Paul, command the men here to quit Like men, the old King James, the genderless piety is a child's game. Think of a local VBS where some kids are jockeying for seats at the craft table. Their teacher reminds them that Jesus taught us to take the lower seat. And what do they all do? They all get up and move to the other end of the table and start fighting over who gets the lowest seat. This is... Essentially, the mainstream church in America today. A bunch of children fighting over who will be last. God commands us here in His Word that we aren't to be too high or too low, but to serve one another as Christ did. I heard one pastor say that the humility of those who serve Christ is not merely the absence of pride, and it is not merely the awareness of one's limitations. Christian humility is realism that recognizes grace. Grace sets everything in its right place. Grace found you in your hopelessly lost position. Grace is what allowed you to acknowledge your sin and turn in repentance and faith. Grace was the smile on the Father's face as He met you on the road and embraced you as His child. Grace is the feast that He threw for you to celebrate your return home. Grace is the story that He told you over dinner of His Son's coming kingdom and the plan to disciple the nations. He gave you grace when you were given an assignment in that kingdom and told to show up for work the very next day. And grace is what keeps you willing and working for His good pleasure. Everything in the Christian life is all of grace Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Biblical humility is cultivated in a field of grace and no other. Brief point of application. Growing in humility comes from the fertile soil of meditation on the grace of God. Don't spend so much time considering your sins. Don't spend so much time considering how no one likes you or how worthless you are. Don't spend so much time thinking about how finite a creature you are, how low you could become or how low God has brought you. Consider the fact that whoever you are, if you be in Christ, you are a graced creature. You are a new creation in Christ. No one else can say that in the world. No one can say that they are a new creation in Christ Jesus unless God has first acted in grace upon their damned soul. And you see Peter's reasoning. He said God is opposed to the proud, but He gives more grace to the humble Peter's reasoning for commanding humility is supported by this quote from Proverbs. He quotes in the Septuagint of Proverbs here. And I'll read from chapter 3 verse 34 in the Hebrew Old Testament. Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. By the way, this comes right after, of course, verse 33 in Proverbs chapter 3 which says the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. The one true and living God functions as three distinct persons in the blessed Trinity and he has a holy, right, and good reaction to pride of any kind. He opposes it. By the way, This is military language. This is a drawing up of battle lines. You want to be proud? I'm on the opposite side. We're against one another right now. I'm not for you. I am opposed to you. The dispersion Christians already have the Jews and the Romans against them and multiple factions besides these. Peter now tells them, do you want God on the opposite side also? Look here, brothers and sisters. To those who take their right station, who serve as Christians, not ashamed of their Christianity, nor of speaking out against all that is opposed to it, and at the same time, they have a realistic perspective of themselves that acknowledges the grace of God and that that is the only reason that they've ever gotten diddly squat in this world. And then they desire to serve the body From that place, what does God do? He dumps more grace. He gives them more grace. The psalmist says, my cup overflows. If we were to pass out communion cups and somebody set yours on the table and started pouring and it's just pouring out over the white fabric and over the table and it's falling into the floor. That's the lavish grace that God gives to those who take their place in the church of Jesus Christ. He gives more grace to him who has more. Not equality, not, oh, I gave you some, let me give this guy who has nothing. No, the one who's got nothing and is unwilling to do anything, what he has is taken from him. But to the one who has been graced and takes their station, God pours out more grace. If you are a Christian here today, you have had to reckon with the reality that all that you contribute to your salvation is a mess that had to be cleaned up. That's it. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? There are a number of you in our church, even over the last several days, who have considered the virtues of the hopeful future of Christianity in America. Post-millennialism is starting to seem more realistic to people after that decision on Friday. Listen to the words of South African pastor Andrew Murray. He said, Until a humility which will rest in nothing less than the end of "...that will rest in nothing less than the end of and death of self, which gives up all the honor of men, as Jesus did, to seek the honor that comes from God alone, which absolutely makes and counts itself nothing, that God may be all in all, that the Lord alone may be exalted, until such a humility be what we seek in Christ, above our chief joy, and welcome this humility at any price, there is very little hope of a religion that will conquer the world. He's right. He's right. God opposes the proud. We don't want Him on the opposite side of this fight, pushing back. We want to be on His side, fighting alongside of Him and receiving His grace. Let me give a point of application to the church. I mentioned last week that churches like ours are not very susceptible to the center trending left brand of Christianity. But we are very susceptible to a godless conservatism. When we fight for the patriarchy or advocate for the unborn or maintain the biblical right to defend ourselves or our families or our property or whatever... Satan is prowling around to remind us that we're right and others are wrong. And it's so obvious. Can't they figure it out? Church, Christ the King stands today because of the grace of Jesus Christ alone. That's it. We are a church full of people who have received unmerited favor you might love the conservative spirit here you might love the fact that we're not a 501c3 or that we speak boldly to everyone including to the federal government if that's your reason for coming here you've got two options you can repent or you can leave you can repent Or you can leave We are not a political movement here Not in the sense that you think politics We are here for the politics of Christ We are here for the kingdom of Jesus This church is not about any movement Except the expansion of His kingdom Be cautious of partisan pride And a divisive spirit Might I remind you, by the way That conservatism A 7-2 decision that was majority conservative is what handed down Roe versus Wade in the first place. Cage staginess must not even be named among us. Peter says, humility, get where Christ is. Let me give a point of application to the young men and the young women. Humility, young people, is likely the hardest attribute for you to exercise at this point in your life. I heard a pastor say recently that he could sum up American culture in one phrase. Project self. Project self. Young people, in your younger years, you are going to be tempted to devote all your time to your future, your advancement, your beauty, your status. I encourage you as your pastor, die to it now. Die to it now. There is no life in Project Self. Ask any of the adults how long the health's going to last. It doesn't last very long. We're all walking around like, well, anyway. (laughs) Amen. Project Self is joy-sucking and life-stealing and hopeless. And by the way, I'm not saying you shouldn't consider what you should do with your future. This is the difference between self-advancement and kingdom advancement. At the conclusion of the Chronicles of Narnia, we hear of Queen Susan, Project Self. She wasted all of her school time wanting to be the age she is now. And she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time in one's life as quick as she can and then stop there for as long as she can. And all the adults in the room know it doesn't last. Young people, how do you know if this is you? Quite simply, I would ask you, how do you use your time? Are you preparing your body for a field Or for a museum? Are you more concerned with prolonging life? Or preparing a future heritage for your family name? Self-service as opposed to self-sacrifice is what the world, the flesh, and the devil want from you. If that's you, humble yourselves and repent to God and your parents. Go tell your dad that you hate how you serve yourself all the time and you are ready for it to stop. You need His help fighting it. Consider how you can use your younger years to serve the body of Christ and not exclusively your own interests. In addition to God opposing the proud but giving grace to the humble, Peter goes on in verse 6 to say, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Peter's command of humility in the church is here extended to humility before God. He's talked about a horizontal humility. Now he speaks of a vertical humility. Since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble... The churches in the dispersion were not only to submit to one another, but also to accept from the hand of divine providence the persecutions and sufferings that He ordained, acknowledging that they came from His mighty hand. This phrase, mighty hand, is used frequently throughout the Old Testament. It's used to describe how God delivered His people from Egypt. I'll give you one example from Exodus 3, verse 19. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. What is Peter saying? He is saying this that this age is the age when judgment begins with the household of God, but that judgment will lead to victory, exaltation, and defeat of the Lord's enemies at the proper time. This little flock had suffered poverty, theft, oppression, loss of family and friends. And Peter says, remember your place before God. He's the potter. You are the clay. Stay submitted to His sovereign will and don't fight it. Also notice, humility in both cases in the church And also before God is the attitude that we're to have, but it is not the end goal. The end goal, the promise of God in verse 6, is that he will reward his church with exaltation in due time. This is the consistent teaching of Jesus on at least three occasions through the Gospels. Give you one example from Matthew 23. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We see this theme repeated over and over again throughout the Bible. Joseph had visions of exaltation and yet was sent into servitude. And as we've read recently, eventually to prison. But God exalted him to be the prince of Egypt. The little shepherd boy David was anointed king of Israel while still very young. This appointment did not rouse his pride as can be seen when Saul later seeks him. For service in his court, Psalm, excuse me, from 1 Samuel 16. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who had been anointed as king, and yet he is with the sheep. Of course, the antitype of all biblical types is Jesus Christ Himself, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place, and gave Him the name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So when's the exaltation coming? Is it in this life? Or it is in the life to come? Some people want to be dogmatic about this. Peter doesn't give us any indication one way or the other. So it's best not to stress either too far. But beloved, victory and exaltation for those who humble themselves in God's providence are promised and assured, and we should not be ashamed of being motivated by the promise of reward. I'm going to do something a little embarrassing. I'm intentionally careful about how often I tell personal stories, and this seems a little bit more significant on a week when we're supposed to be talking about humility, but I need to tell you, church, for the last 16 years, this scripture has been an absolute balm to my soul. I told you last week about running a weed eater after losing my teaching job, and I can tell you dozens of stories just like that. From 18 years old and newly converted, I desired to pastor a church And time and time again, God said, no. More times than I care to count, and in ways that were not just humbling, but humiliating in front of large groups of people. But the faithful creator was working on something good, and I needed to submit myself in humility to his plan, and at the same time, die to mine. I never would have seen myself here, I never would have dreamed of being part of a church like this. But I can tell you this, church, don't fight God. Don't fight Him. Submit to the hand of providence. Humble yourself before Him and whatever exaltation He has planned for you, perhaps in this life, surely in the next, He will bring it about. By the way, I admit I need your prayers. I do. I have by no means arrived and I certainly could still wind up proud and needing God's and the rebuke of His church. I'm sharing this story with you to offer a specific kind of hope. God's sanctification does things, beloved. It does things. This mindset of I'll always be trapped in my sins and I'll never get over this, that is sub-Christian. God's Holy Spirit makes you more like Christ. If He does not, He is not the Holy Spirit of God. He is not the third person of the Trinity. He can make you like Jesus. And Jesus promised us that He would. So lean in to that part of the victorious life and humble yourself before God and let Him raise you up just like He did His Son If you submit to Christ, repenting each time you fall, and getting up and getting back to obedience to where He has called you, you will become more like Jesus. Point of application I know none of us here have been persecuted like Peter's churches were, not yet, anyway. But almost everyone here is dealing with some kind of hard providence. There are acute illnesses in our church. There are dead-end jobs and fledgling businesses. There are quarrels and fights in Christian homes, perhaps even this morning, on the way to church, and also fights in extended families. There are barren wombs, and there are people who are lonely. There are desires for ministry in the kingdom that are currently going years unfulfilled humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Jesus is more than worthy of your trust and faithful obedience. Listen to the words of Psalm 94. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord, he knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. For justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will then follow it. Alistair McIntyre said, We can only answer the question of what am I to do after we've answered the previous question of what story am I a part of? Beloved, you are a part of God's story, and that story is in the chapter where God is cleaning His house and straightening things out for His growing kingdom. If you could see right now what He is through hardship making you into... You would either disbelieve it or be terrified of it. Instead, live in contentment and humility before God and His church in the part of the story that you are currently in. God has promised exaltation. The only thing that remains is for the humble to await its completion. Well, finally, we'll conclude with verse 7. One of the most precious verses, I think, in all of the Scriptures. Casting all of your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Fiery trials of any kind have almost a universal effect on a sinful human heart. They tend to make us anxious. Marimna, the Greek word here, comes from a root meaning to divide. Think again of Peter, Peter's churches. Families being torn apart by persecution, hunger and thirst from job losses, Isolation, loneliness from a society of which they are no longer a part. That takes a huge psychological toll. You can imagine the desire and the devotion of the early church being pulled in two different directions. From faithfulness to self-preservation. A couple of weeks ago I mentioned your body's ASR or fight or flight response. Isn't it interesting when we have moments of anxiousness, Christians will tend towards one of those two ends. How do people fly or run from their trials? The Bible talks about drunkenness. It's interesting how often this is mentioned in connection with anxiety. When times get tough, people want to escape. They want to stick their head in the sand to bury the emotions and feelings to make it all go away. In Peter's day and in ours, sin leads us to intoxication. Jesus warns those who would have to endure the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD and the intense persecution that would follow, he says, Be on your guard so that your hearts may not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly, and, and that day will come on you suddenly like a trap. Notice here how anxieties and drunkenness go together. All through human history, Jesus' days and ours, drugs and alcohol are go-to's for getting through. Look at the first verse of "Next week. He says, "Be sober-minded." Anxiety again, connected with sobriety. Beloved, funneling the booze or popping pills to deaden the mind are forms of escapism, but they are not biblical Christianity. Retreat does not come from faith, but fear. And perfect love casts out fear. Just a brief point of application. I was talking with Pastor Matt Hudson from Basswood years ago about how to biblically deal with a melancholy spirit. Anxiousness, sadness He gave me a number of helpful tips But one that has stuck with me to this day Is this He said, Chris When you're depressed Stay away from alcohol Having a drink is supposed to enhance Whatever mood you're in And I find that it has the same effect When I'm sullen Rather than help Pastor Matt said It hurts Stay away from it church And find joy in Christ Jesus. What is the equal but opposite error? That fight instinct. Or you might think, try and control your problems. Not everyone cows from fear. The reverse is just as deadly. The fiery trial has come upon me and I feel like I've lost control. So if I only had X, I could get my life back under control. Certainly the early church would have wrestled with this. Peter told the elders not to do their job for shameful gain. He also told the sheep that they should not suffer for thievery. Again, don't take the bait. How is our thinking any different? If I could just get a better job or a bigger house or have that investment portfolio turn back around, which everyone is thinking right now, or if I could just build bigger barns. Investments and promotions and improvements in living and quality of life are not evil, but God didn't send you the fiery trial so that you could lean on the flesh, on your own understanding, to set your hope on the things of this world. What did Jesus say right after telling the parable of the man who was anxious about his harvest, and so he decided to build bigger barns? Here's what the Lord Jesus said. He said to His disciples, I tell you, Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. They can't build bigger barns. And yet your God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life from Luke 12? Tom Schreiner says, worry is a form of pride because when believers are filled with anxiety, they are convinced that they must solve all of their problems in their own strength. The only God they trust in, Tom Schreiner says, is themselves. The right response to fiery trials is faith. God, You have to trust Him. This is what is meant by humbling yourself under His mighty hand. This is also why His mighty hand did not let up in the days of Pharaoh because he refused to humble himself. Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Here Peter gives a most blessed truth. And I'll read this to you in a wooden word-for-word translation from the Greek. He says of verse 7, All the anxiety of you having cast upon Him because it matters to Him concerning you. If there is one truth that I could drill into every Christian's heart that would change the way that they act for the rest of their lives, propelling them to courageous service and sacrificial love, that would compel them to preach to prostitutes in Anderson County or to Muslims halfway across the world, that would humble them in just the right way, that they would then rejoice when in due time God does exalt them. It's this truth, beloved. You are are individually and personally loved by God. Praise the Lord. The Lord your God is in your midst, Zephaniah says, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with singing. All that is happening to you right now, beloved, He cares about. It matters to Him concerning you. All the acute illness, all the feelings of loneliness, all the feelings of barrenness, all the feelings of unproductivity. It matters to Him concerning you, all of you, in Christ, every one of us. It matters to Him. You are of more value than a multitude of sparrows. Nobody here... Nobody at any church in Anderson County or Tennessee or the United States or anywhere around the world has ever come close to comprehending the love of God for one sinner who finds repentance. We have never even begun to fathom how vast, how wide, how deep, how expansive is His love for us. So why be anxious? Why hold on to that? What does Peter say? Get it rid Cast it upon the Lord. That's faith. Not I'm going to hold on to it and try and fix it. Not I'm going to run away from it. Cast it upon Christ. Brief point of application Anxiousness is something that we are all prone to, but it is women who tend to be more given to it. The woman is the weaker vessel. And women sense their lack of power and control more acutely than men. This has been the case recently to lead women into the victim camps, always feeling sorry for herself and asking for a handicap tag everywhere she goes. And sisters, if that's you, repent to God and to your husband and put your faith in Christ. But the opposite error, which is likely to be more common at a church like ours, is women who deal with their anxiety by trying to take control of everything. What if my health deteriorates and I lose my ability to care for my family? What if my husband loses his job and we can't keep our house? What if my kids hang out with those kids or watch that movie or have some other person than me teach them and I lose their hearts for good? Which, by the way, those are all, in a way, legitimate parental concerns. But sisters, to deal with this by demanding from God the driver's seat and taking over and not casting your cares on God is sin. It is wrong and it must be repented of. No matter what you've been told, you are not in control. Without faith, the Bible says, it is impossible to please God. Give yourself to God and cast your anxieties on Him. Well, in conclusion, here's a final thought for everyone. As Peter's instructed the whole church, I'll give a final thought for all of us. Remembering your sin and repenting of it will help you defeat pride, but it has no power to create real, lasting Christian humility. God doesn't grow humility in us, through a recognition of our sin, but in the recognition of His grace. If you want to come underneath the command to be like Christ and walk in humility, as Peter here instructs us, consider all that you have been given in Christ. Consider His love for you and the place that He is preparing for you and how being humbled in this life, He promises to exalt you with Himself in the next this is the fertile soil of humility. The old hymn says, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the whole ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole. though stretched from sky to sky. If you are in Christ today... You are a partaker of that divine love. And that has the power to bring even the proudest man to his knees. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and how it nourishes our souls. You are good to us and far better than we can even think. O Lord, help us to contemplate with our brothers and sisters today and in the days to come Your grace for each of us in Christ Jesus. And we ask that as we are known, as we belong to Anderson County, as we intend to belong in Anderson County, Christ the King would be known to be a church that is clothed with humility. It's in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen.